May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The outlook wasn't brilliant for Mudville, the Mudville 9 that day. The score stood 4-2, to two, with but one inning more to play. And then when Cooney died at first and Barrows did the same, a sickly silence fell upon the patrons of the game. A straggling few got up to go in deep despair. The rest clung to that hope which springs eternal in the human breast. They thought, if only Casey could get but a whack at that... We'd put up even money now, with Casey at the bat. But Flynn preceded Casey, as did also Jimmy Blake. And the former was a Lulu, and the latter was a cake. So upon that stricken multitude, grim melancholy sat, for there seemed but little chance of Casey getting to the bat. But Flynn let drive a single to the wonderment of all, and Blake, the much despised, it, tore the cover off the ball. And when the dust had lifted... And the men saw what had occurred. There was Jimmy safe at second, and Flynn a hugging third. Then from five thousand throats and more there rose a lusty yell. It rumbled through the valley, it rattled in the dale. It knocked upon the mountain and recoiled upon the flat. For Casey, mighty Casey, was advancing to the bats. There was ease in Casey's manner as he stepped into his place. It was pride in Casey's bearing and a smile on Casey's face. And when, responding to the cheers, he lightly doffed his hat, no stranger in the crowd could doubt t'was Casey at the bat. Ten thousand eyes were on him as he rubbed his hands with dirt. Five thousand tongues applauded when he wiped them on his shirt. Then while the writhing pitcher ground the ball into his hip, defiance gleamed in Casey's eye. A sneer curled Casey's lip. And now the leathered-covered sphere came hurtling through the air, and Casey stood a-watching in haughty grandeur there. Close by the sturdy batsman, the ball unheeded sped. That ain't my style, said Casey. Strike one, the umpire said. From the benches black with people there went up a muffled roar, like the beating of storm waves on a stern and distant shore. Kill him! Kill the umpire! shouted someone in the stand, and it's likely they'd have killed him had not Casey raised his hand. With a smile of Christian charity, great Casey's vigilance shone. He stilled the rising tumult, he bade the game go on. He signaled to the pitcher, and once more the spheroid flew, but Casey still ignored it. And the umpire said, Strike two. Fraud! called the maddened thousand, and echoed fraud. But one scornful look from Casey and the audience was awed. They saw his face grow stern and cold. They saw his muscles strain. And they knew that Casey wouldn't let that ball go by again. The sneer is gone from Casey's lip. His teeth are clenched in hate. He pounds with cruel violence his bat upon the plate. And now the pitcher holds the ball. And now he lets it go. And now the air is shattered by the force of Casey's blow. Oh, somewhere in this favored land, the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere, and somewhere hearts are light. And somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout. But there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey 
has struck out. If ever there was a better poem penned in American ink, I've not read it. I mean, you can have your two roads in a yellow wood, you know, take your song of myself, take Anne uh, Bradstreet's uh, Sweet Ode to Her Mate, whatever poem you want to put up against it, I'll take any of them. Give me Mighty Casey of Mudville every single time. I like the mental picture of Casey. You see this big brute of a human being as he struts to the plate. He's ready to uh, not only get a hit, he's ready to win the game for his team. He's going to go and, and, and bring home victory for Mudville. He doesn't think it's going to happen. He knows it will. He is so confident as he walks up to the plate. I remember it as a boy playing baseball and how my level of confidence was exactly the opposite of Mighty Casey. I was in every way the opposite of Mighty Casey. You know, this big strapping guy. I was this puny little kid. And I remember my very first year of baseball. I was about nine or ten. I was a late bloomer going to the game. And, and our coach, Harry Ashley, he was one of the, he was one of the greatest guys and, and a fantastic coach. But try as he might, he could not find the formula to help me either catch the ball or hit it. I mean, everything he tried, I could not do that. Um, by rule, by league rule though, uh, little Joey Boisel had to play two innings of baseball. Two full innings. I think they have since curtailed the two full inning rule. But back in my day, you had to play two full innings. And so um, they tried their best to keep me out of the action. You know, deep right field. Coach Ashley would say, Joe, just play up against the fence. Put your back on the fence so that you feel it. And he just figured everything would at least fall in front of me if it came my way. And I... But he had no idea, Coach Ashley, had no idea of my passion, of my fantasy of catching a fly ball in the outfield. I mean, he had no idea. So if the ball came my way, by jingles, I was running for it. And the only thing I had gone for me, being little and, and untalented and all that sort of was that I was fast. And so I would run for every ball. I did not catch a single fly ball, not only in a game, but even in practice. I remember the coach saying, I'm going to hit it to you till you catch one. And he gave up, you know. Um, it might have had something to do with me closing my eyes, you know. <laughs> when the ball got right there. It might have had something to do with it. I'm not sure. But that wasn't the worst. My very first year playing in the Med League, uh, Med Lake, uh, um, Little League on the Dodgers team wasn't that I didn't catch a single fly ball, either in practice or in a game. My biggest claim to fame was I didn't get a single hit the entire year either. Every time to the plate. I went O for the season. The entire season didn't get a single hit. I didn't even put a ball in play. I don't think it ever went in, you know, that I hit it and it went between first and third. It just didn't happen. The closest was a couple foul balls. I counted those moral victories and went home and told everybody about the great foul ball I had. You should have seen it. Whew, it was amazing. He helped me the next year, but that first year was horrible. And here was the worst thing, is I knew I had to get up to bat every time we played. 
I wanted so badly to be a great baseball player, and I knew that I was so horrible. But I knew that I had to, every time, I couldn't quit. He would never let me quit. You know, my mother wouldn't let me. I couldn't do that. My brother was on the same team. He would beat me up. And so every game, I knew it was coming. There would be some eight-foot-tall, ten-year-old, they were always eight feet tall, and he would throw the ball 112 miles an hour, and there I would be, about three foot six, and, and it would come flying right at me, you know, and it was going to kill me. It was awful. It was terrifying. And I worried about it. I mean, I really worried about it. I, I, I remember not being able to go to sleep the night before a game because I was worrying about it. I remember the pit in my stomach. And I think baseball taught me how to worry. Or at least it revealed the worrier that was already buried deep inside there, right? We humans worry about things. You would say to yourself, oh, he's just a 10-year-old kid, you know, just a little boy. You know, little worries to us are big worries to them. And if they looked at our worries, they would sometimes probably say, oh, you're really worried about that? It's always easier to look at somebody else's worry and say it's not a big deal, isn't it? When it is a big deal to us. And we humans worry about lots of things. We worry about silly things. We worry about whether it's going to rain. You know, there's a parade today. Is it going to rain? Uh, are people going to come to my party? You know, I send out invitations. Will anybody show up? Uh, we, we worry about, um, about what our teenagers are doing in the hour or two before curfew. You know, are they in the mischief or not? What are we going to wear to the charity auction? All these sorts of things. But we also worry about big things, too, don't we? I mean, we do. We worry about monumental things, about the scarcity of resources, about whether there's going to be money to pay kids' college tuition, how we'll fix the car, pay the mortgage. We worry about our bodies. Will we live to see our grandchildren graduate? Our children? Will we make it through another year or another week or another month or whatever it is? We worry about big things too, not just little things. We worry about things that matter. And Jesus loves to expose our worry, doesn't He? He knows how to sort of ferret it out and get right into the heart of where it is that we're worrying about. You know, He knows right where it is and and likes to point it out. The Sermon on the Mount, perhaps you remember it in in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, Do not be anxious about your life. What, will you, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you'll put on, is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Don't be anxious about stuff, about whether you have enough money for stuff. That's what he's saying, right? Verse 27 of chapter 6 of Matthew's Gospel. And of which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Oh, he's got to do it, hasn't he? Money and health. Just ferreted right through to both of them. He, he knows what we worry about. And he speaks about these things because at the heart of the matter. I mean, this is the, the issue. And in chapter 12 of Luke's Gospel that I read this a moment ago, we sort of have the same story. This is the Sermon on the Plain for Luke. It's the sort of same information, the story on the Mount. Jesus is going after, um, uh, he's going after this sort of things that we, we are concerning ourselves about so much. And as he gathers together, Luke says there were thousands of people. I mean, can you imagine that? He's out preaching in the field and thousands of people come to hear him preach. 
And you know who's among those thousands of people? There are some Pharisees. Oh, oh, they're fantastic people. They get a bad rap in the, in the Gospels, don't they? I mean, a lot of people think, oh, Pharisees, they must have been wicked. They weren't. They were really good people. They, um, they were scrupulous people. They, they were, they were the, the most scrupulous religious people you had ever met or ever would have met in your life. They, um, they, would, they would tie, they'd give a tenth of, of, of their income on everything. When they went out and they clipped the little herbs out of their herb garden, I mean, imagine this first century Pharisee going out in his backyard and he's clipping these little herbs out of his herb garden and he has these little leaves of mint, you know, cumin. Whatever else they have, you know, I don't know, those spices. Uh, and, and so he gets all these, and he, he takes his little mint leaves and has a little pile, and he divides them into ten little equal piles. And then he takes one of them, and he puts it in his little purse, and he's going to carry it to temple on the next Sabbath to tithe on it. Because a tenth of it belongs back to God. They were so scrupulous that they, didn't, they, they wouldn't work on the Sabbath. Of course, it's a commandment, right? And so they actually thought about this. How many steps, you know, how many little trips to the refrigerator and back can a person make in a day? They didn't actually have refrigerators. How many steps could they take in a day where it would go beyond pleasure and be considered work? They had a fixed number. I don't know what it was. You know, 700 or something. And they would count, beginning on Friday night, they would count the number of steps they took. One, two, three, four, five. Over to get to the, you know... To the TV remote. And then back, you know, they didn't have TV remotes either, in case you're wondering. But anyway, they would do, how many steps back? And they would do it from Friday evening to Saturday evening. And if they exhausted the number of steps that a person was allowed to take before pleasure turned into labor, a Pharisee would sit down and remain where he was until sundown on Saturday night. Be that in the middle of his living room or the middle of the street. Right there. I don't know about you. I lose track of my um, how many swings I take on the golf course on a single hole. You know, it's always conveniently lower, I think, than what it actually was. But they would keep track. I thought that was funny, didn't I? Okay, they, they would they would keep track every step that they took, and they showed up when Jesus preached. Of course they did. I mean, they were interested in what he had to say, and they were critical. Of course they were. This is what the religious police do, right? They come and listen and take notes and say, I think you were wrong about this. I remember I was at a church one time, first time I ever preached to the church, said something, whatever, and um, preached a sermon. And afterward, this, um, this lady met me at the back door and she said, um, that was a fine sermon, but I don't think I agreed with everything. I said, good, I don't think I did either. <laughs> uh, but it's there, you know, there's always somebody who's going to, to take notes and, and disagree. And Jesus says to the people who are following him, and listen to his sermon, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of this poison. This poison of religion that kind of gets in there and is destructive to human beings. You see, religion is the idea that human achievement can help one get to God. Faith. The, the faith of Jesus is believing that divine providence is enough to trust. Religion is thinking, I can do something by my own power to get to God. Whereas true, true religion, faith, is believing that God is fully trustworthy. 
Jesus is telling the people all this, and right in the middle of it, this guy stands up and he says, Hey, mister, this really does happen. You should read chapter 12. It's right there. Hey, mister, tell my brother to share his inheritance with me. Who does this, you know? I mean, can you imagine Jesus preaching a sermon and somebody stands up and says, Can you imagine right now, you know, uh, I don't know, Sue stands up and says, Hey, Joe, you know, by the way, uh, can I finish what I'm doing here? But Jesus doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't. He knows that when this man stands up and says, Tell my brother to share his inheritance, it's not a call for justice. It's worry. He's worried he's not going to have enough. How am I going to live? How am I going to manage to survive? What am I going to do? A legitimate concern. Listen. Listen to Jesus' answer. Fear not. Fear not, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Here's what you do, mister. You who are worried about your inheritance, sell your possessions. (laughs) No, no, you completely misunderstood. You see, I don't have enough. No, 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 Jesus says. You have too much. Sell what you have. Give it away. Put God to the test. See if he doesn't take care of you. Give away what you're worried about and see if it doesn't come back to you. Don't miss this, okay? Religion is believing that we can somehow, you know, twist God's arm and get him to do something for us. But faith is believing that God cares about us and that He actually is going to take care of us and that we can fully trust in Him. That we can really believe that we can put our lives out there on the line and that He's going to take care of us. So here it is, okay, a long way to this part. In your mind, pull out your list. Your list of concerns. Oh, you know where it is, don't you? Oh, yes, it is not buried deep in those files. It is way close to the front. You pull it out and you look at it. Don't tell anybody. Okay, you look at it. Some of you have a long list. I'll let you look at it for a moment. What's number one? What's the biggest concern? Do you believe that God will take care of you? Do you think you have to handle that? Or do you think the Lord will take care of it for you? Do you think He's trustworthy?